Father, we come before you just seeking you. We, we wish to know more about you, be filled with your spirit and have this knowledge that we might proclaim it from the rooftops because it is such a great thing what was done so long ago. We pray, Lord, that we would not uh, take your words lightly, but we would take them to heart. We pray that they'd be transformative. They would not simply be hearers of your word, but we would put them into practice. As your word says, those who love you, keep your commands. So, Father, we ask that you would fill us, instruct us, and renew us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read the text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 1. And I'm just going to give you another account, besides the one that was read this morning, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a second here. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood with their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priest and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it was the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that this 
or what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, and because, or excuse me, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish or broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds, and they could understand the scripture. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple praising God. What a story that they witnessed. I mean, being back there, they were so downtrodden, so downcast. Remember on the road to Emmaus, their faces were cast down. And they didn't want to do, know what to do on that Sunday morning. They were just on a quest. They were kind of walking away. Well, what do you want to do? I don't know what you want to do. And they just start walking away from Jerusalem. So Jesus meets them. They end up going back and then begins. And they, they all have questions. Did you see him? What did he look like? What happened? And all of the questions that must have come up. And so they were on a quest for questions being answered. They wanted to know what is the deal with this? And Jesus kept on reminding them. Now, there are six questions that are delivered here. First, it's the two angels. They come along and say, don't you remember what he told you? This was going to take place. And then there's five questions after that that Jesus asks of them. And we all have questions about God. I have never had a, a, an opportunity where somebody I met they didn't want to, in some way, shape, matter, or form, want to talk about God. And they didn't have questions about God. You'd be surprised. Even the atheist wants to talk about God. Let's talk about that, is what they'll say. I don't think there is a God. What do you think? And they'll want to engage it. Or an agnostic. Well, I'm not sure if there's a God or not. So everybody has questions about God. Does he exist? Is he real? Questions such as, 
Is he there? What is his nature? Is he good? Is he vengeful? Did he create everything? Is he sufficient for life? Can I trust him? Did the crucifixion really take place? Is the Christian God the right God? What, happened to, what happens to me when I die? What happens if I don't believe? Which religion has a verifiable truth about God? Buddhism? The Hindus? The Muslims? The Christians? I mean, people want to know this stuff. And then a lot of times if they have given up the search, they become cynical. And those types of people will say, nah, I don't want to hear anymore. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. But they are more far and few between than those that want to know. So the questions come up. The first question was in verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together along or as you walk along? And so their heads are down. They're probably mumbling back and forth. Jesus comes up. He can hear them talking. He goes, so what are you guys talking about? And he goes, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know what has taken place? What things have happened? And he goes, second question, what things? As if he doesn't know. But he knows. And he says, well, what things? And so they get engaged in this conversation. And he gives them a Bible study. Jesus takes them to the Old Testament. Didn't have the New Testament then. Takes them to the Old Testament. And the fact that Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. He is given up by the chief priests. Is what the guys are saying to him. Hope that he would redeem Israel. All their hopes were dashed in all of this. But then he goes on with this conversation about answering all of their questions and showing them from the word who he was. And it was probably the best Bible study that has ever been given. But verse 26, it reiterates that. He said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And remember when he was with the disciples, he told them, this is going to happen. And for some reason, they weren't listening. He said it over and over. He goes, I have to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be handed over to the elders and the chief priests and I'm going to be put to death. What did Peter say? No, it's not going to happen to you, Lord. And then Jesus turned to him and said, I rebuke you, Satan, get thee behind me. You know, And they just couldn't accept the fact that he was going to go to the cross, even though he told them plainly. Now, we have this issue as well. We'll hear the word of God. We hear it clearly, lucidly. It is explained to the nth degree. And we go, huh? We don't quite grasp it. We don't quite take it. That's because we're really unwilling. We don't really endeavor to do it. I've used this analogy before. To get an ounce of gold, you have to move a ton of dirt, 2,000 pounds of dirt. You have to excavate. You have to run it through the sluice box. You have to pan it out, whatever you have to do. But to get an ounce of gold, that's what's necessary. The same thing applies in Scripture. If you really want the understanding, if you really want the knowledge, you have to pan for gold. You have to run it through the sluice box. You have to divide it. You have to look at it. You have to examine it. You have to go to the original language. All of those things are so necessary. And then when you get done, you have an ounce of gold. How much is an ounce of gold worth now? Wouldn't you like to have about 10 ounces of gold right now? It's over $1,000. Well, just imagine if you're mining God's word, the richness of the wisdom that is contained inside. And so my hope is that we say, okay, I'm going to die to self. I'm going to get involved in this. I'm going to break it apart. I'm going to divide it so I see which is the gold and which is the dirt. And it will benefit not only me, but it will benefit everyone that I come in contact with as well. And so there was an implicit 
statement when Jesus asked them, do you not know these things that, you know, you were told these, the scriptures actually explained this to us, that this was going to happen? It's like, didn't you know this? Well, the answer implicitly there is, you should have known it. You should have known what was there. The advent of the Messiah, the crushing of his heel, the bruise, or crushing of his head, the bruising of his heel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, referring to Satan and going to the cross, the foreshadowing of the forthcoming sacrifice, the Lamb of God, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the Deuteronomy, the confirmation that Moses said, another prophet like me is going to come on the scene and you're supposed to listen to him. Psalm 22, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you read that, I was just listening to... Uh, a podcast of a, a Jew who was running away from God, had turned to drugs during the 60s, and somebody challenged him to read the Old Testament, and he saw Christ in the Old Testament. And he was challenged, ask God, the God, of, the God Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, to reveal it to you. And this Jew got saved. He ended up going on getting several degrees, and he pastors his own church as a result of it. And he's reaching out to the Jews and those who need Christ. And so there's so many examples out there not only in Scripture, but elsewhere. There is evidence in nature that God set up these things, that these things would take place. For instance, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. If you look at the heavens, if you're an astronomer, it's one of my favorite subjects, you know, going out there and paying attention to the stars and the rotations of the galaxy. It takes a billion years for one spiral galaxy to make its round one time. That's just incredible. How big? That's huge. And there's order, but you have all these random galaxies going in every which direction, and they are without number. They'd like to say there's so many billions. It's so far beyond that. It's like planets in each galaxy. They've gone to billions and billions. It's probably trillions. And if you add up the planets around those stars... Trillions and trillions. It just goes on forever. It is huge. And guess what? The entire universe is governed by a series of laws. Now, who set up those laws? Did we discover it? No. Well, we we discovered it, but did we make them up? No, we just discovered it. Those laws order the universe. Those laws order our earth. Our earth is mathematically driven. God is a master mathematician. All of that stuff is out there, and we can see it if we just look. The person who doesn't look doesn't see. You know, it's like God said in the book of Romans chapter 1 that what may be known about God has been made clear to them. If they just look at creation, it may be understood from what has been made. And so there is actually an explanation in Scripture that God exists, but people sometimes don't want to take the time to investigate that. Now, another clue from nature. You know, in the Psalms, Let me read it to you. Psalm 22. This is the one about Jesus being crucified. I'm going to read from verse 4 through verse 8. It says, In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm. I am not a man scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And so this gives a depiction of Jesus being crucified. And he says there that he becomes a worm. Now that word for worm, it's not the right word. 
the translators that put it in several different versions, the word worm is not an accurate description of the insect that he is describing. The insect he is describing is a coccus elysis, is what it's called. Yeah, exactly. I thought you would ask again. A coccus elysis. Now, you say, well, what is that? Daryl, could you show me the first picture? Now, this is hard to pick out what this is. But this is, those red balls right there, those are insects. Now, you see the ant on top and the ant on bottom? This is known as your common everyday scale. Now, if you know what scale is, scale is a little mobile insect in its immature phase, and it runs up these plants and attaches itself to the plants. There's all kinds of scale which is out there. There's cottony cushiony scale, puts off this uh, junk that looks like cotton that's there. there. There's all kinds of them. But all of them produce honeydew. It is sweet, just like an aphid. It produces honeydew. It is sweet. If you were able to eat it, you'd say, mm, it tastes like honey. This is really good. The problem is that will get on the plants and it turns to mold, turns all black. Your citrus may have had the black sooty mold on them. That's because of aphids or scale that would be on the plant. Now, this worm is really not a worm that's being referred to in the Psalms. It's scale. So this thing, this little insect, is mobile, and then when it becomes an adult, it attaches itself to the, the stem of the plant, sometimes to the leaves, and it remains there till it dies. It clasps itself there, and the eggs of the female are laid underneath the shell, and they are protected until they are ready to be released, and they go out and they repeat the same life cycle. Now, one thing about this scale, the ants, they will take care of the scale, because of the honeydew. They will actually move these little nymphs around and they'll say, okay, you're going to be here. And they harvest them and they go for the honeydew and they're like cattlemen. They move these things around. It's really unique to see this. But when you take that little insect that's there and you crush it, you go to the next one, Daryl? This is an example of the exact scale that is being referred to in the scriptures. There's an oak tree in the Middle East and this is the type of scale that goes there. Now, they used to collect this. They would collect this scale, and they would put it into vats. It's very expensive. And in those vats, they would crush it. And when they would crush it, there would be something unique that would happen. And you're going, what's he doing? I don't know. What is he doing? Tell me. This is our version here of the scale. You know what this is? Prickly pear cactus, to be exact. Now, this prickly pear cactus, you see that white stuff on there? That white stuff is an insect. It's scale, is what it is. Now, if you take that scale and you look at it, and I really like this prickly pear cactus scale because it's white. Now, what kind of robes are we going to get? White. Now, Jesus, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was gleaming bright. And that represents his purity, right? But then he went to the cross and he said he was a scale. He went to the cross. And in his purity, in the scale, when he got crushed, remember Isaiah says he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions or just vice versa. Well, watch this when it gets crushed.
This is an example in nature that God shows us. He was pointing to stuff like this going, wow, look at that. There is the crucifixion of Christ who was pure. And he, he became a worm and his blood was spilled for us. And so you can look in the stars. You can look at plants like this. He says it in the scripture. And when you dig, you know what this is? This is an ounce of gold. That's what this is. And if you just take the time to look at this stuff, you're going, wow, this is, this is just fascinating, this stuff. And there's so much more than just that if we take the time and look in the scriptures. Jesus, you know, he also talks about us being a witness, just like that is a witness, just like the stars are the witness. If, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. He was, in fact, a walking testimony. You are a walking testimony. The power of transformation when the Holy Spirit gets in us. He wants to change us to be more like Him. We resist Him along the way, but God, if we submit to Him, will eventually have His way and He'll give us the new body and everything will be restored. So these questions are being asked and then Jesus goes on. He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? When we get this evidence, when you get the evidence of the universe, when you get the evidence of the scale, when you get the evidence of the individual life that has been changed, all of those, we will look, when we are outsiders, we are not in the body of Christ, we will look and say, What's going on with this? You know, how come your life has changed? How come you've taken this route? And so more questions comes up, come up and you start doubting. Well, I don't know. There's, there's so much that is out there. You know, the Buddhists can't be wrong in everything. The Muslims can't be wrong in everything. The Baha'i faith can't be wrong in everything. Well, no, all truth is God's truth and not all truth is in the Bible. There is truth that is scattered out there, but you mix enough truth with arsenic. You think it's good? No, you just want to go to the pure truth, just like pure honey. You want pure water of the word. And when you go to that, you know, it just refreshes. But when you get water of the word mixed with a little arsenic, it's not so good. You think it's refreshing, but then it leads to death. You know, I quote that verse often. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end thereof there is destruction. That's why God calls us to his word, to being a disciple, all of those things. And so they had this quest. Then they had these questions. The final question that's delivered here by Jesus. He says, do you have anything to eat? Now, why do you think he immediately, you know, he's explaining to them, why do you guys doubt? Don't you know this was supposed to happen? He goes, hey, you got something to eat? Why does he go to that? Because it is very difficult to believe that somebody has risen from the dead. But if they sit down and have a meal... And they're watching him. Yeah, we got some fish here. And they give it to him. He, he actually takes it to go, oh, oh, this is good. A little tilapia. Yeah, oh, thanks. You know, he, he kind of munches on that. And, and they're probably sitting down at this point And they're going, he's alive. He's eating. He's alive. He's not a ghost. This has actually happened. And you know, they're, they're trying to shake their head like, what in the world has transpired? And by this time, first he gives them the Bible study and their hearts were burning within them. Then he eats and he recognizes who they are and they're like, or who he is and they, they just kind of go nuts on the inside. So it's nighttime. They go, let's get back. 
So they're going, what, seven to nine miles back at night. Now it's, why is, I should say it this way. It's still a moonlit night. Remember, I told you last week, why do we celebrate Easter and Palm Sunday when we do? And the Jews have a lunar calendar. We have a solar calendar. And so it would have been on the full moon that the Passover was taking place. It would still have been very bright. They could have walked easily that seven to nine miles, however it was. And so with this, they went back to the other disciples, the 11 who were there, and all the other company, the women were there, and they made an inquiry. They went, so what, what did you guys see? What was going on? Now, this is what we're supposed to do as well. When we see the evidence, we're on a quest, like we're going through life, just as I was explaining these two on the road to Damascus, excuse me, to Damascus, or excuse me, Emmaus. They're on the road to Emmaus. Paul was on the road to Damascus. Cleopas was on the road to Emmaus. And so they're walking along, they're on a quest. We do the same thing. We're on the road. We've heard about the crucifixion, but we're on the road. All of a sudden, a companion comes up alongside. Now, for us, it's the Holy Spirit. He's called the paraclete in the Greek. He comes up alongside, and he starts saying, God is real. And you go, you know, I wonder if God's real. Check it out. You know, maybe I should go to church. Read the Bible. You know, all of these things start coming... Maybe I should read the Bible. And he comes alongside the God of the universe because he wants us to know this information. And then once we do that, we have questions. Well, I don't, I don't know about that question. What about that? In the men's study on Thursdays, there is the one on Saturdays, we're going through all the issues of salvation. We have 54 questions so far. The youth is going to be going through those as well. And so all these questions come up and and there are solid answers in scripture. Like how does somebody get saved? Can they lose their salvation? Do they keep it forever? You know, all these types of things that come up. And so you make this inquiry. You start asking the questions. You go through this deliberative process to find out what is going on. And as I said before, people always want to talk about God and it's a good conversation. But... This is the story of the resurrection. Jesus is raised from the dead and he's offered us salvation. Why he had to do it, why his blood had to be spilled, why he was the Lamb of God, nobody else could do it. All of that stuff takes time to develop the proper theology that actually comes from Scripture to be stable in your faith. Otherwise, you're kind of unstable and you have to dig and you have to investigate in order to do that. Now, why did all of this take place? I'm going to answer this question uh, for us personally. Why did it all take place? But I want to make sure we understand the context of what's going on here. We've just been talking about the resurrection, the aftermath. But what happened Friday? What happened in the crucifixion? In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel talks about this. He also talks about this in The Case for Easter. And he interviews a doctor, Alexander Metherell, MD and PhD. He has credentials both in the medical field and scientific field, and he's an expert on the crucifixion. He, he was explaining to Lee Strobel when he was doing an investigation, what happens when somebody gets crucified? Because there is the swoon theory. You guys know the swoon theory that Jesus was placed on the cross, and one version of it is that Pilate let him come down early. He put him in the tomb, and he resuscitated in the tomb. He came back to life. And the Muslims will say he even went to India and lived out the rest of his life in India, and there's even a place over there. This is where Jesus is buried. And so that's one of the swoon theories that is out there. 
And the Muslims will say that, no, he didn't really die. Somebody else took his place and they thought it was Jesus. He was made to look like Jesus, but he wasn't really Jesus. There's all kinds of explanations for why the crucifixion didn't take place. And so Lee Strobel decided to interview this guy and get the medical facts, the scientific facts on what takes place when somebody is crucified. Now, of course, there, Jesus, he, he was beaten, right? But before he was beaten, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying. And remember when he was praying, there was something unique that happened to him. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, you may think you're under stress. Not even close. There is a condition, and this doctor explained it. He called it hematidosis. And it's where the capillaries in the sweat glands, they actually explode. They actually burst because someone is under so much stress. And then they start sweating. And as they sweat, the blood starts to come out. Now, if you go over to Jerusalem today, right down below there is this church. And this church, it it has high windows in it, but in the windows are black slate because it was Jesus' darkest hour. And they have this stone. And around this stone are these stainless steel or maybe they're silver Uh, It's little spikes that come up all the way around it. And they have this bedrock that's right there. And they say, yep, that's it. That's the place where Jesus sweat great drops of blood right there. Now, is it? I don't think so. How could they possibly know that? But they have a church and they have that set up. And you can go look at it. It was Jesus' darkest hour. And he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. That is a tremendous amount of stress. I dare say none of us in here have ever experienced that. But he knew exactly where he was going. He understood the cross. And if we knew the day of our death, what would you think if it was only four hours from your death? Oh, you, you would be sweating bullets. Like, it's coming. You know, yeah. What I, you know, I know I go somewhere. I won't be there. When I, but then you know that you're still going to die whenever you go, wherever you go. And Jesus had that information. He knew that. He knew inside intimately what was going to happen to him. And that brought on the stress. And then he was whipped or scourged or, or flogged. And, of course, there's this thing called the cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was a bunch of straps of leather. And on that would be, they would be these little metal balls and also shards of bone. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a bone that comes off of, like, um, a butcher. Sometimes they're very sharp. And they would put those sharp bones into those leather strips and that's what they used to beat Jesus with. They would flog him with that, and the little metal balls, when they would hit, it would cause a contusion. Now, that contusion, if you keep on hitting it with the same metal ball, it'll break open. And if you combine with that the sharp bone that's in there, it will actually rip open the flesh, and it is said by those who investigated it that the sinews and the veins will actually start showing all the way from the upper back down to the bottom of the thigh where it reaches the knee. That's what they would have constantly have been hitting, and it would have shredded his flesh. Now, because of this, there are some conditions that come into play. Hemorrhagic shock is uh, one of them. This is where you would have a a tremendous loss of blood. One-fifth or 20% of the blood of an individual would be lost. And there are several things that happen during this time. These are the heart starts to race and it's trying to pump blood that isn't there. The blood pressure drops. The kidneys start stop producing urine because they're trying to conserve the water inside the body. And then the individual becomes very, very thirsty. 
later knowing that all was now complete or completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And so this is a medical examiner saying exactly what will happen to this individual. And you would be going in and out of states of consciousness during this time. We do have a mechanism in our body that when we go into shock, sometimes we don't feel pain. But I assure you, Jesus was feeling the pain. But he, like I said, may have been going in and out of consciousness while still uh, with the eyes open, just trying to endure the pain that is there. And then once he was beaten like that, his body would start shaking or convulsing almost uncontrollably, tremendously thirsty, delirious at that. And not only that, but the lightest of it, you see in that box right there? See what that is? I have to be very careful here. Ouch. Ow. Forget it. That thing, that thing is sharp. You should look at, just go up and try to grab it a little bit. It'll appear, I'm going to give blood for the cause right now, I think. You know, but that, he was wearing that. And on top of that, you know what they did when they first got him? Punched him in the face took their fists and punched them right in the face. How would you feel after being punched in the face, the crown of thorn being flogged by the Roman soldiers who were there, then being taken to the trial, barely able to stand up even at that point, being whipped and scourged on the back, going through this hemorrhagic type of shock, and then now you have to pick up your cross. And it wasn't a full cross like you see everybody carrying around. It was the patibulum. There is a vertical post that is always sticking in the ground, and they grab the patibulum, which is the cross member, and they nail the person, the individual being crucified, to the patibulum, and then they hoist them up. Now, when this happened to Jesus, of course, they would have nailed right through the median nerve, right inside the wrist. Now, most pictures you see, it happens inside the hand, but it happened here, inside the wrist. And what happens is it causes the fist to be made like this because it pierces that. Now, there's an ulna nerve down here on the elbow. Have you ever hit your funny bone? How does that feel? There's a similar nerve right here. Now, how would you think it would feel? Well, this doctor describes it. He says, it's like going into that nerve, taking a pair of pliers, squeezing and crushing the nerve with a pair of pliers. That's what he would have felt here. He felt that also in his feet when they nailed his feet. And that nail that they used would have been five to seven inches long kind of square, tapered down towards the end. And they put him on the patibulum. And as they pulled him up, this doctor says that each shoulder would have been dislocated, as the scripture predicts, would have been dislocated to the dimension of at least six inches on either side. That's what he went through. And you know, he did this voluntarily. This wasn't something that was forced upon him. He submitted to this, this type of torture. And of course, the cause of death, the cause of death in crucifixion is asphyxiation. What happens is you have a lining around your heart and you have a lining around your lungs. And when you're under that much stress, they fill up with fluid. And that fluid, if it's not drained, it will kill you. And what happened to Jesus is those things filled up. And by the way, when it gets to the point, Jesus would have known when he was going to, quote unquote, die 
or expire. He could have felt it coming on by what this doctor had said in this. And you should probably read this by Lee Strobel. But anyhow, Jesus would have known. And so there was a tremendous ache in his chest that was going on. He was thirsty. He was delirious. And he was trying to breathe because of the water that was forming inside the chest cavity. It would have made it very difficult to breathe. And you couldn't do it hanging down. So you had to push up with the nail that is going through the ankles to breathe because the pressure was on the lungs. And so when you stop going up, that's when you died. That's when you succumbed. That's why they broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus because they were no longer able to push up and they had pass out and then they would die. Jesus died before that. And the, the uh, Roman soldiers came along and they said, okay, we need to know if he's dead or not because we're told to kill him. Of course, they were experts in death. They knew how to torture, all of those things. And so they pierced Jesus in his side, and this doctor said it's probably the right side. I don't know why he says that, but he says it's probably the right side. And as soon as he pierced all that liquid, and I know somebody who was in the hospital, they had two liters of liquid around their heart. And so when you pierce something like that, all the water comes out, and there was more blood than water. They said that came out. Why would Jesus volunteer to do this why did the resurrection take place it was for love for you it was for me why did the disciples after him go and die martyrs death maybe except for John all of them why for love do you love that much where you would do that where you'd say sign me up I'll volunteer for that this love can only come from God that's why when God comes along and he says, you're not going to accept the sacrifice, do you know what my son went through in order to redeem you? And, and people just take it and they throw it to the side and say, you know, I'm not interested. I'm more interested in me and my life right now. And, you know, I have to say, this life is a wash. It's a throwaway. It's not going to last. King Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived, you get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says, life is vanity. You know, we work all our lives. We try to save up and have a retirement nest egg and just set it to the side. And guess what happens? Then we die. We die and somebody else gets it. We work for nothing. It's what we work for. And all of us die. And so King Solomon said, it's vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And so what was his solution? Fear God. Love life here on the earth the job that you do, and it's going to end. And when it ends, God will give us a reckoning. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. There's no in between. And so that's what we're supposed to do. Why did the resurrection take place? It was for us, to give us a choice. Do we want to live with Christ? Do we not? If we do, he wants everything. Not just 20%. Not once a month, not eight times a month. If you go midweek and you go Sunday, he wants every single day. And then once he has that, then he says, go out and make sure you're a witness. Tell others of what my son did. The father would tell you, go up, go tell everyone else what Jesus did. And so we see the quest, we see the questions, we see the inquiry. And for the believer, for us, 
it's important we gain this extra knowledge that we dig for gold, that we, we pan out there and we find those nuggets to enrich not only our own lives but the lives of others. And for the unbeliever, it's time to trust in God and all he has done for us because he paid such a great price for us to have this relationship. And of course, when Jesus was talking uh, through Paul to the Hebrews, you know, the people who, they understand what Jesus did, but then they trample it underfoot, and not necessarily literally trample his sacrifice underfoot. It's just by neglecting it, just by turning away. Those people will surely be judged, and those who accept them will surely be blessed. There's only two options. And so our task is to choose which option we want. Now it says once we receive Christ that we're supposed to be that witness. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2 says, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of his salvation. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to say a prayer as we did last week. I'm going to say a prayer of salvation. I want everybody to repeat after me. If you don't want to say it, you don't have to say it. If you want to go to heaven... And live in eternal bliss. No more pain, sorrow, suffering, death. Any of those things. You say the prayer. If you don't care about that stuff. You don't say the prayer. And afterwards we're going to receive communion. But I want to say that prayer. Since we know that God has revealed himself to us. Through the scripture. Through the universe which is out there. Through creation. Through the witness of people who are around us. If we take all that and say. I believe it. I want Jesus to do the same for me and save me. Then you'll say this prayer. So please bow your head and say this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and be Lord of my life. I confess you as Lord and believe in my heart that the Father raised you from the dead. I will trust you for my eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have said that prayer, you need to tell somebody. And if you have said that prayer, he calls you to more. He wants you to be a disciple. And so all you have to do is say, Okay, Lord, whatever you want, your will be done, not mine. And so at this time, the worship team is going to come up. And what we're going to do is we're going to receive communion. And Dustin, I'm going to have you come up and pray when it's the time. But uh, as you take the bread and you take the cup, it is for those who have received Christ. Now, for the individual who haven't, hasn't received Christ, it is meaningless. And there are some in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians, it, it says that there are some who have taken it in an unworthy manner, which means we're supposed to look in our hearts and see if there's any iniquity in us. Now, you already just asked for forgiveness if you said the prayer. And so you've said, God, please cover everything that is there. And so you are welcome to receive communion. If you don't feel you want to be part of Christ, just let it pass. Just go on. And we're going to sing a song uh, during this time as this is being passed out. And as it's being passed out, I would ask that you would hold on to it until we can all participate in receiving it together as Dustin will pray for us. And if you could turn off the center lights here, I'd appreciate that.